and welcome to another 42 to Doomsday Staff Christmas Party episode. I'm Mark. I'm Rob. I'm Richard. And I'm Dave. Just like many other large organisations are doing at this time of year, we're consuming free food and wine and M&Ms, and also handing out redundancy notices at the end of the episode. Welcome back, everyone. How are we? I, I feel like Anthony Ainley on the set of Survival, knowing this is my final recurring appearance in the show. Actually, do you want to hear a funny story about Anthony Ainley? Sure. When I was travelling in the UK, we out to dinner with my daughter's uh, friend who we met there, and the dad came along. He was a cricketer. And somehow he got into Doctor Who. He goes, I used to play cricket with the master. I said, really? W.G. Grace. I said, no, not that one. I said, I said, was his name Anthony Anley? He goes, yeah, yeah, he was. He goes, he used to go in his car and have lunch, you know, sitting in the car, you know, reading books. And he goes, no, he's reading girly magazines. You heard it here first. Bird can't sue. <laughs> Would that stop you now anyway? No, not really. <laughs> We're on a suicide mission. <laughs> Come over, man. I'm not going to let that stop me now. No. <laughs> it is one of our final episodes-ish. Penultimate. Penultimate episode. Penultimate episode. This, is. this is your ghost light. <laughs> well, Ghostlight was the last one filmed, so... Numbers, yeah. second last broadcast, overwritten, wonderful guest cast. Yes. This is your warlord. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> call back. Call, call back. back. Call back. You guys have been with us the for journey. most of the journey. I think 2014, you are on our fandom episode, I think, in January 2014 with uh, Tom. We, we recorded... Yeah. We recorded with you in 2013. 2013. We were at your employer's office. From oh, memory. that's right, yes. You're putting together our final Sonic. That's right. Yes. Mm. You lugged in your Apple Mac. That's, that's right. right, yeah. I'll be within half an hour, boys. Three days later, you're still moving that little pixel to the left. <laughs> and, yeah. Let, let's face it, 42 to Doomsday is one you know, wonderful, but only a small fraction of our time together in fandom, which for me dates back 30 years this year. Wow. 1987. What were you doing in 87, Richard? I wasn't in fandom. That was your finished school, sadly enough. <laughs> Did it have Carl TV back then? Yes, Mark. They had... <laughs> yes, I still had a Commodore 64, though. Hey, good machine! <laughs> but we did work out many, many years later that at some point in 87, we were all at the same screening of the first episode of Time and the Rani. None of us knew each other at the time, yes. but three of the four of us were there. And we all thought it was <laughs> <laughs> I had my episode uh, obviously imported over and I only had myself to say it was sh- I was about to say you didn't supply the copy that they screened that day, did you? No, no, I supplied them later on when uh, somebody else we knew withdrew them. So tonight we're going to be a bit more shambolic than usual, I suppose. So we've got a few topics. As if we couldn't tell from the start. <laughs> I've got to say, we're sort of standing here on the burning deck with you but, <laughs> and the band played on. <laughs> That's two different nautical disasters. <laughs> David, how have you been? I'm fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> no, no one's ever cared to ask before. <laughs> Weepy now that this is our second last episode. So. I was going to say, can you tell we're scratching for content yet? <laughs> no, we'll get to the content shortly. We've got a packed, feature-packed show, Richard. How dare you imply that? We won't let me talk about the Omni route. <laughs> no, we're not talking about that. We're done. <laughs> Maybe you should just make that a running gag for the whole episode. Like, sorry, next segment you go, oh, can we talk about the Omni route? No. <laughs> get out. For our Christmas episode, Christmas is all about togetherness, for the season of goodwill. Good swill, more like! <laughs> exactly. 
one of our topics we're going to bring up tonight, we may as well hit it straight on, was I'm calling this, this segment, We Need to Talk About Eric. So over the last couple of years, uh, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, uh, particularly ones from Australia, and uh, particularly one based in, a, in, in Exeter, who have been universally critical of the man who occupied the script editor's chair from, uh, on Doctor Who from 82 to 86. And that man, of course, is Eric Sayward. I've sort of been banding this topic around for a while, and we sort of put it off and put it on, but I thought, well, you know, we're about to go out rambling shambolically, so why not we have a, a talk about Eric and see if we maybe can find a couple of positives, maybe, about his time on the show. So uh, we might throw it over to Dave first, see what he brings to the table. Thanks, Mark. So I've got a number of points to raise, but let me start by saying I totally agree with your premise. I've found listening to a number of podcasts over the last year or two and just circulating in fandom generally, Eric Saywood seems to have now reached a point where people don't even bother to debate whether he was any good. Hmm. Uh, you know, J&T at least gets a debate about you know the pros and the cons. Eric Saywood is just sort of written off, and you don't need to even mention why. Everyone just seems to know that he was terrible. Now, I'm not saying Eric was the best script editor in the in the run, not by a long shot, but I've got a number of very positive points to discuss with him. I'm just going to start by saying you have to really consider where and how you should judge Saywood. So he comes into the show, he writes The Visitation, which is, look, not a classic, but I think a near great. He writes Earthshock, which I think, particularly in the Davison era, is a classic. He then becomes the script editor. Season 20 is not the best season, but... For somebody who is just getting his feet under the desk, it is coherent, it is solid. I don't think that there's a terrible story in there. Some people will say Terminus, I don't mind Terminus. There's some big ideas. Season 21, I think, is the best season he does. Mm. At that stage, he is, knows what he's doing, and he has not been encumbered by some other stuff. So you get in there a run of, I think, really great stories. It is thematically quite consistent. There's, some, again, big ideas. I think that that is one of the best series of Doctor Who. There's some great stories in there. And that's where we should be judging what Eric Sayward can do. After that, we've got you know a doctor that we know he didn't think should have been cast. JNT is causing him some issues, and it you know, goes downhill. And then you've got all the stuff that happened in trial. Mm. But I think when Sayward was left to just get on with the job, he produced some really good stuff. And if you judge him by that, I think he stands out very well. As I said, I've got a lot more points, but that, that, that's my, my opening case to the jury. I think when you talk about Sayward, as, as you said before, there's three, there is three points. His work as a script writer, his work as a script editor, and unfortunately the way, you know, the hiatus season 22 and season 23, and they all get bundled together in one big splodge, you know what I mean? So, yeah. it's, so I think it's hard to, to separate those facts. His work as a script writer, I don't particularly like Resurrection that much these days. I think it, it's not particularly great. But, you know, you can talk about... Revelation, very good. As you said before, Visitation, Earthshock. As a writer, I think out of four, five scripts he did, I think four are actually pretty good. And, and even though you can pick apart Resurrection, mm. it did top the DWM poll that year. So it was popular when it went out, and it has got fans. What about if I said to you... So the word cynical gets used a lot when talking about Eric Sayward and his writing. I think it's more towards his script editing style, maybe. I think Resurrection gets signposted a bit on that. To some extent, I think he's just channeling the vibe of the the time Mm. in in the way that, you know, the 60s very much feels like the 60s, the white heat of technology, the excitement of was going on. The 70s feels like the 70s. Things are a bit darker. Things are a bit harder. It's a bit tougher that comes through. And the 80s had a particular vibe. And if Doctor Who had continued under Saywood to make stuff that felt like the 70s, it would have gone nowhere. You know, you, you have to make 
a show that is contemporary. Mm. And Doctor Who today is made the way it needs to be to continue to be shown. Mm. Do we necessarily like that? Not always. We've had that discussion. Mm. I think Sayward was making the Doctor Who he had to make. I'm especially looking at some of the television at the time. You know, you had Threads... Uh, the day after <laughs> things yeah. let us be honest not particularly uh, joyful television I think at that time there was a television what's produced like that maybe that rubbed off on, onto Eric and, and some of his work yeah you've also in the age of the Terminator the Predator yeah, Robocop that's right you know, all of that stuff and if Doctor Who just pretended that wasn't happening yeah I, I think it would have been a mistake because you know, the fifth Doctor Who is fairly a nice character in a universe of violence I think he's trying to show that as well yeah, which is an interesting concept. And like mm. I say, when he, when he hits the ground thematically, mm. it works. Maybe we should let the others into the conversation. No. Uh, so, <laughs> Richard, your thoughts? I'll be honest, I haven't watched any of the Fifth Doctor stuff for probably 10 years. Why is that? To be honest, there's no compelling reason for me to. I haven't come up with a compelling reason to pull any of them off the shelf. Not even Caves? No, actually. The only one I reckon I've watched probably in the last 10, 12 years would be Earthshock, I think. And uh, possibly Caves. The 80s for me probably was really a transitional period for the show because I discovered it probably in the mid-70s. So, of course, for me, it was very much Tom Baker was the man. Basically, by the time the 80s and, and Peter Davison rolled around, I, I was really a teenager. Um, and while I was still watching, it had gone from probably being my favourite show ever on television, where it had been a couple of years earlier, probably now just to being something I watched in... Uh, along with, with a lot of the other programs that were around and the TV programs. I mean, I was watching stuff like, I mean, we went through, you know, Battlestar and I was watching stuff like the A-Team and I was watching The Professionals and that sort of stuff. It's not an era I've ever really had a particular fondness for and it's not an era I've probably ever really gone back and, and consistently re-watched. Um, there would be stories probably in the, in the Davison sort of Sayward era I probably wouldn't have watched for 20 years. I think a lot of those points are perfectly valid. I actually think I, I, I don't really understand why people just write him off as a you know a blight on the series. I, I can't really see that. But Rob, look, listening to all that, I, I think my, my comments sort of with regards to say would more land on the fact that I think he's he's a bit of a tragic figure within the show's history. Um, I mean, he basically, with his Starburst interview on, on the way out the door, he set fire to his career, and that was basically it. I don't think he really mm-hmm. worked within television ever again. And considering where he came from, he shone brightly for a, a brief moment, and that was it. Uh, in terms of his output, I mean, you're right, Dave, of the four or five scripts that he did, they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. I, I, I do have problems with Resurrection now. I think it is too cynical, even for... I mean, I, look, I take your point where definitely Doctor Who in the 80s was picking up on the zeitgeist, you know, shows like The A-Team, you know, sort of mercenaries, and we have mercenaries in Doctor Who under, under Sayward, I suppose. But Resurrection is just goes too far. It doesn't match what Doctor Who's meant to be. Um, so I suppose at the time I enjoyed it, but looking back now, I think it, it's, it's a bit of a... It's a bit unfortunate, actually, the way how, how cynical it is. In terms of his script editing... I suppose he was stuck with whatever what all script editors are stuck with, you know, impossible time frames, trying to hurt a bunch of cats masquerading as uh, as, as writers. Plus, I suppose he had. I mean, there is that off-quoted thing where he had he wasn't allowed to bring any of the older writers back because J and T wanted new voices, and and had to fight, I think, to get Robert Holmes back yeah. in to write something. I, I think that was a real fight, wasn't it? And, and this is a point that I've had in my list of good things about him. Yes, it was a fight, but. In 
circumstances when many other script editors could have just curled up and said, okay, no old writers, I won't do it. He fought hard to try and get Robert Holmes back to do The Five Doctors. Hmm. When Robert Holmes couldn't, he then got Terence Dix, which I think, you know, that actually was a better decision. And that was great that Terence came back to do that story. And then he got Bob Holmes back to do Caves of Androzani, hmm. um, to do a number of other stories. I mean, The Two Doctors isn't perfect, but I'm glad we have it. I actually think Mysterious Planet is a perfectly decent story, and who doesn't want more Robert Holmes? So, Sayward was willing to go into bat, and had he not done so, we wouldn't have got those writers back against JNT's, you know, will. And he's also trying to keep, I mean, if we go back to other writers, say Peter Grimwade, for example, I mean, the reason we kept Grimwade on as a writer was to try, I suppose, and, and correct... The, the slide that JNT put on Grimwade in terms of his direction. So he was trying to keep Grimwade in the frame in terms of saying, hey, we, we'll keep him as a writer, but we'll need to bring him back as a director, which which unfortunately didn't happen. And and again, look, Grimwade doesn't succeed with time flight. I think we can no, all, no. agree with that. Yeah. And, and Sayward would have had very little time to do any work on that one at all. But Mordred Undead, I think, is a very good story. Again, I won't claim it's a classic, but I enjoy it. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. I think Planet of Fire is one of the top two or three stories of the 80s myself. Mm. I think that's a brilliant script. And again, Saywood fought to have Grimwade come back because he saw what he could do. Yeah. The relationship with JNT obviously started off quite well, but I think with JNT, he he just directed Saywood to say, look, I want this monster back, I want this monster back, I want this monster back where Say was trying to corral a story and also a theme on the season. But when you're getting asked to keep putting monsters back, and I think if they had, if Barry Letts was actually still there as executive producer, I think Eric Say would have, would have had more support to push back on a lot of those ideas. Well, having said that, apparently Barry Letts, when he was there for that year, did very little. He just sort of turned up, ticked a couple of boxes and then went home. So I think even if he had been there more consistently... I don't think he would have done anything to protect Sayward. Oh, I think he helped out with Anthony Root. When Anthony Root got there, there was a pole pile of scripts that hadn't been looked at, and JNT apparently buggered off to a convention. And uh, Barry Letts said to, let's just go through it and try and get at least the first story for the fifth Doctor. So I think I think they needed some th- form of seniority there, because basically JNT is a fairly good, I suppose, numbers man in terms of producer, but in terms of a theme or an idea on the show... This is all returning monsters. So, so this does raise one of the two negative points that I had in my list of Sarah points. I've got many more positives, which I'm sure we'll get to, but I do have to say that by the time the Colin Baker era came around, Eric Saywood's petulance does hurt. Now, JNT doesn't stop what, doing what you're talking about when Cartmel becomes a script editor. And when Cartmel becomes a script editor, he still says, I want the Master in Survival, for example, or I want an episode that does this, or I want the Cybermen in Silver Nemesis. But Cartmel says, okay, you're the boss, fine, I'll go and I'll make this work. Whereas Eric just spends the next 30 years seething, going, how dare he ruin my story, this is ridiculous, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. And I don't think that he had that professionalism by the end and should have walked at the end of season 21 when things did start to go sour. But as I say, that's one negative, I've got many more positives. I think also, the amount of episodes... Saywood had to contend with 26 as opposed to 14. There was a lot of pressure to get 26 episodes out the door. And as we know now that um, there was a lot of scripts that were junked. He had to do a lot of work on a lot of those scripts to make them usable. And he actually needed, you know, he said I needed more older writers or more experienced writers so I could get one or two, the younger writers, and, and sort of show them through the process. But unfortunately, he had a lot of newer writers and, and he had to do a fair amount of work on them. Yeah, that said, though, and this is one of my positive points, 
when you listen to interviews on the DVD documentaries, particularly with some of the writers that did come in, it's very clear that Saywood was very big on world building. Mm. And that, I think, does come across in his era. Uh, you look at something like Vengeance on Varos. You know what this world is. You know what its history is. You know how its government works. You know how its society works. And you actually create a realistic world. And the same when you look at something like Snake Dance. You know where Manusa is. Manusa's got a history. You know what the backstory of Manusa is. You know how it works. You know where all the characters fit in an actual real working society. Frontios is the same. You go through a lot of Saywood's time and you actually generally have got this effort put into putting in worlds as opposed to a lot of other Doctor Who where the world is basically the three characters and the three rooms we see and there's no actual functioning society out there. Mm. And I give him huge amounts of credit for that. And the stories that I think do stand the test of time from his era Mm. are because of that. And, And as I say, writers in documentaries very clearly say this was something that Saywood directed them to do. Hmm. And they always say, you know, Cartmel had the oddball stories, but I mean, Enlightenment would be classified as an oddball story, wouldn't it, really? Well, that's it. His, his big concepts are actually quite hmm. quite interesting. Terminus is flawed, particularly, I think, in terms of the production rather than the writing, hmm. but Terminus is a wonderfully big, exciting concept that is worthy of Doctor Who. So is Enlightenment. So are many of his other stories. Um... <laughs> Arguably, Trial of the Time Lord, for all its faults, is a big concept. And mm. I don't have a problem with script editors pushing big concepts. Mm. If I could just make one sort right. of big, big positive point, yep. and that is that I think he did hold the show together in a way that was almost impossible. You look at what was going on, particularly in season 22, mm. when you've got all the issues with Colin, how the show's being received, you've got the Ian Levine stuff going on in the background, and you know him insisting on all these rewrites for stories... J&T's issues, etc, etc, etc. The fact that we got, you know, not a classic season, but a coherent, put-together season delivered, that is not easy, and I think he deserves credit for just getting the show out and, and having the stories work, and, you know, some of them are big ideas and some of them do work. The big negative that I have, and this is where I think he does pale in comparison to Cartmel. When Cartmel finished his script editor after three seasons, he just had a bank of very good writers that he could call upon. So, if... Carl would have been run up the next day and say, right, find me another season of writers. He could go to Ian Briggs, Ben Aronovich, Rona Munro, Stephen Wyatt, you know, etc., etc., etc. He just nurtured this den of writers that he could mm. go to. Eric Saywood discovers Eric Pringle, who writes one not very good story and leaves. He discovers Glenn McCoy, who does one not very good story and leaves. Like, you, you say that Eric had to, you know, do all this rewriting with new writers... I think to some extent that's because he couldn't find ones who did become regular writers. You know, where was Eric Saywood's Bob Baker and Dave Martin? Yeah. You know, where was his Malcolm Hulk? Mm. Where was his Ben Aronovich? When you consider his relationship with J&T and Colin, I do wonder how much of his personality is responsible for writers not joining the fold compared to what other scriptures did. I think that's his biggest failing. So in terms of, I suppose, uh, the way Saywood left the program the word career suicide has been used a number of times and it is absolutely true because he didn't work uh, in the industry again apart from I think German radio I think he was doing some work in the early 90s and a couple of BBC things but nothing really uh, monumental or major no, to, to the point that he now has the only two stories from the classic series not novelised Rob you need a new project no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. What? You don't want to novelise Revelation of the Daleks? Well, I was going to say, they might have to work out something with the nation estate first, but all I have to do is just cough up what they want, and that's about it. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to say, given, given that the nation estate you know, went through and did allow um, power and evil to be made in the 90s... Mm. Yeah, but that was because nation basically said he would waive his fees for his mate, John Peel. Yeah, I don't think he was a mate of Saywood's. <laughs> <laughs> 
if you had enough money, I'm sure Terry Nation. Yeah, because I mean, well, I know Say would say he didn't really. It, would, it wasn't worth his while novelising them because the money he would have to give over to the nation state for the use of the Daleks meant he would get basically nothing out of doing them. Um, and he really, but then he was also in the boat a bit like Douglas Adams. He didn't really want anybody else to do them. So. I think they tried in the early 90s to get other authors to do I think Paul Landon was supposed to do a chapter, and I think, I can't remember who the other one was. Yeah. And That's right. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, it was Paul Leonard and somebody else. What mean Gareth Roberts? I can't remember. Gareth Roberts was down to do Revelation, which, yeah. that would have been a very interesting take on Revelation. Yeah, they had to do a sample chapter each, and then uh, I, don't think Gareth, I don't think it progressed any, any further than that. J&T is deceased and not around to, uh, quote, pick on, I suppose, for the show's perceived failures, where Sayward is not necessarily in the in the eye. I mean, he goes to signings and things like that and the occasional convention, but he's not as very visible. We're being nostalgic this episode, Mark. If you look back to when we were all in fandom the first time in the early to mid-90s, you know, and we weren't podcasting, but we were writing for fanzines, mm. the way that a lot of people talk about Sayward now is how people talked about J&T then. Like, J&T was just a joke. He was a byproduct for rubbish Doctor Who. Yeah. His era was universally panned. It was all his fault. He's had a bit of reassessment now, and people see the, you know, the grey, the, the, the light in the dark. I think that because of that, now Eric Say was the target. Mm. It's just... And maybe there's a bit of a mob mentality. Well, I think it's just virtue of the fact that he's outlived J&T. And like, sadly, my prediction is sadly that once Saywood passes away... For those who, of us left who care about these sort of arguments, um, they will probably have a positive re-evaluation of him after that. But as you say, he's still alive. He pops up now and then. It's just people doing what people do and just taking a, taking a, a shot at someone who's still around. Is part of it due to the circumstances under which he left the show? And over what is probably a pretty... Considering everything else that, that, that apparently was going on, is a pretty pissy reason to, 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 to take your bat and ball and go home. Well, at this distance, I mean, people, should people still be having a go at him for the way he left? I mean, at the time, I suppose, you, you could have a go, but it was like 30 years ago. Put it this way, season 23 is falling apart around his ears. Now you can have the argument where basically, yes, he had 80 months to get it right and didn't, he was trying different writers, new writers, and again had the same problems where things were falling apart. Had to get Pip and Jane Baker to try and close this thing out. He's not getting any support from the producer who just keeps swanning off to conventions. Um, obviously, the pressure is great. And there's been, I mean, there's been plenty of circumstances where people just said, I've had enough and walk out. And then he then writes, he then writes the, the episode for 14 for a trial and hands it to J&T and says, look, this is how I want to see it out. And then J&T at the end said, I don't like the ending. So he pulls it out. And look, we can certainly discuss, and I think we're going to later in the episode, whether trial as a concept was a mistake. But if it was, you can't just blame Eric Sayward. He conceived that idea with Robert Holmes. It was approved by J&T. It was approved by the BBC. All the writers who wrote it bought into it. So, you know, okay, if they collectively made a mistake, that's fine. Well, the BBC, I guess the argument by then didn't care. So no. I, I think saying they approved it really just amounts to somebody going, yeah, right, tick and flip. You, you, you don't use the F word in it, fine, here's the, well, here's the well, tick. No, I, I'm actually going to disagree because didn't Jonathan Powell send back the scripts to a mysterious planet he, just, he ripped just, apart. just covered in, yeah, in notes? Yeah, he ripped so, them apart. So, you know, Powell was willing to, you know, give detailed notes on Mysterious Planet, but still signed off on the trial concept. So, look, I'm saying that it was a mistake, but to just put the blame at Eric Sayward, I think he's very cheap. No, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a... It's a group effort. Well, look, trial is okay, but it is it is a, it is a, a season that, um, as a collective, it was a failure. Yeah, but again, put yourself in his shoes. 
he's the script editor for a show that's been basically axed and then you know put on hiatus as a bit of a reprieve. He's told come back after eighteen months, make us a new show and make it better. Okay, how? Oh, less dark and a bit more humour. Yeah, but what else do you want to say? Just, 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 just make it better. Mm. How? Just make it better. How does a script editor work on that? And particularly when J and T's just in the going, yeah, what they said, just make it better. Mm. You know, yeah. what, what's a guy to do? And then when you know his mentor dies suddenly in the middle of that story, I, I don't blame him for you know Walking getting very up. emotional. Yeah. I mean, he, he was clearly in the midst of grief. Yeah. yeah. And, and and look again, I don't think his episode was particularly good. I, I think there are a lot of mistakes. But a man just after years of pressure in a hostile work environment, he clearly didn't enjoy in fits of grief he made a bad decision and yeah it's cost him and it you know, should cost him because it was a bad decision but I don't think the Starburst interview helped either I mean no. it was baited by Ian Levine and obviously in the state yes. that, that Savid was in uh, apparently that interviewer actually the one they printed was actually the, the, the nicer version apparently it was four hours of just bitterness and bile ranting coming out because obviously it's just built up so much let's mention Ian Levine here I mean apart from the fact that Ian was sitting there giving you know just the most pernickety, absurd notes on stories. You know, Warriors of the Deep comes back with 35 notes or something from Ian Levine about obscure continuity points. And James C. says to him, fix that. What's the script to do? Do you want me to make a good show or make what Ian Levine wants? Yeah. And then, as you say, Ian Levine's there goading him the whole time. When fandom likes what happens, Ian Levine takes the credit. When he, fandom doesn't, oh, it was all Eric. Yeah. You know, even attacking the Cybermen. Well, attacking the Cybermen's a bit different. He wants credit for that. I don't know why. But, <laughs> but you know, Ian Levine was very happy to put Eric Flaywood out the front and say, "Oh, tell them all this." And then when the crowd's booed, said, "Oh, it was all Eric." Hmm. There's there's a more compelling argument, as you have outlined there, Dave, for instead of Eric Sayward being the scapegoat for the you know his period in time for actually taking a more deeper dive into what Ian Levine contributed to the series at that point. Um, but happily we've only got two episodes to go so we won't do that no, but uh, you, you actually make a really good point in the Marston book which is a fantastic book his biography of J&T we do get a bit of an insight into what Ian Levine was doing and the role that he was playing in the show I actually think there is a proper uh, whether it's a documentary or it's a research piece or something there is a really interesting look at exactly what Ian Levine was doing uh, both with the show and with the episode recovery is actually separating some of the legend from the fact yeah. Um, and yeah I suspect that we'll find that Eric Saywood actually gets a lot of the blame for stuff that Ian was doing mm. if you look back at Eric now I think he was a better nuts and bolts script editor than, than Andrew Cartmel in terms of Cartmel's stuff overran a lot but Cartmel had better ideas and, and as you said had that writer's room going you know he, had, he was really sort of working on that a lot more where I don't think Saywood had the time because he had 26 episodes a year to try and get through and deadlines and everything like that. He's trying to get new, trying to get the writers, trying to get the scripts into shape. Where Cartmel had a bit more, I suppose, time and uh, to, to do it when you've only got 14 episodes to, to, to play with. That's right. And don't forget, look, oh, look, I'm a big fan of Andrew Cartmel's work. I'm a fan of the direction he tried to take the show and particularly those last two seasons. But if you judge Andrew Cartmel just on what was on the screen as opposed to on the extended releases and the novelizations, I think Cartmel goes down a bit. We can look at Curse of Fenric now as an extended release and go, that's a really good story. Mm. I remember watching that when it was just its cut 24-minute segments. It made no sense at all. So as a script editor, Carmel, you're right, did struggle with that. Saywood at least got the show out. It ran to time. It made sense. The continuity flowed between stories. 
that's not a bad thing. Mm. I mean, hell, Douglas Adams struggled with that. Douglas Adams is a genius writer. Yeah. Look at the script. Look at his script editorship. So, Eric, hopefully, we've redeemed you slightly, somewhat. So Doctor Who has had a number of arcs running through uh, the classic and obviously the, the modern series. So, so Dave, arcs. One point that occurred to me when researching this antediluvian topic is to consider that the two major arc attempts in the classic series actually both suffer from the same fault. Even though I think one is a more enjoyable experience than the other, that being the key to time versus trial, I think they both have very similar faults. I think that the key to time is a very enjoyable season, but despite the key to time stuff running through, look, let's face it, that's very marginal. Trial, I think there's two very enjoyable stories in there, and there's two not so enjoyable stories. (laughs) But if you look at both of them, they both suffer because you get to the end of it, and clearly they hadn't worked out how this was going to end. Key to time, look, for all its enjoyments, for all its good stories, you get to the end of Armageddon Factor, and nobody clearly has a clue what's actually meant to happen. Mm. Is it that the Black Guardian was the White Guardian all along and tricked the Doctor into finding it? Is it that when the Doctor assembled the key, the White Guardian was in the background doing all his hocus-pocus stuff, resetting the balance, and then the Doctor was able to disseminate it? Or did the Doctor decide that actually, on reflection, nobody deserved the key, including the Black or White Guardian, and threw it out and it was never... Like, like there actually is no coherent... It's a mess. Meeting for it. Yeah. They've just got to and gone, I don't know. Um, just throw it away. Yeah, just throw it away, yeah. <laughs> throw it away, see what happens. Yeah. So, so for every fan who says correctly that trial actually ends and nobody knew how trial ended apart from, you know, Robert Holmes and he died, well, you kind of have to level the same criticism at the key to time. And indeed, people complain about, well, you know, how many fans were watching the key to time for 14 episodes and remember the whole plot and, you know, what happened in part one. How many people watching the Armageddon Factor Part 6 cared or remembered what happened in the Rybos Operation mm. Part 1 what, 30 episodes ago? Didn't Douglas Adams write the the last five minutes of Armageddon Factor in terms of that uh, that resolution of, of the whole Kira time thing? Was that, is, that, is that a myth? Or or was that, that, uh, well, well I, I think it is true. I think he was having a, a trial run script editing and given the whole now I possess the key to time <laughs> stuff that Tom's doing I think it, I think the evidence supports it. It could have been Douglas Adams. It yes. could well have been Douglas Adams. <laughs> yeah, and it's not fair to give the new guy, hey, by the way, you've got to try and wrap up the last 26 weeks because we've run out of ideas either. Yeah, and, and in fact, Trial does at least have an attempt to be a proper arc in that you've, you've got the references in Mysterious Planet where Sabalon Glitz talks about the sleepers, how they're stealing something from, and then it's excised from them, you know. They, they censor that line of where it's been stolen from, and that is going to be a revelation that it was stolen from the Matrix, so you mm. know, that's Planet there. Uh, you get the stuff in Terror of the Vervoids, which I really like Terror of the Vervoids. It's possibly the best story of the Colony era. Just make that as an aside. But in Terror of the Vervoids, they've clearly thought about, okay, what does it mean that the Matrix is being tampered with? So, you know, this is a bit that's been twisted here. Or the, the shot of the Doctor destroying the communication system is clearly fabricated. What does that mean? And there's actually, actually an attempt at a proper arc in there. And I think Trial is simply let down because let's face it the first author of episode 14 died the second one resigned and the and third was Pip and Jane Baker yeah exactly yeah. just as an, again as an aside credit to Pip and Jane Baker who were basically brought into a room with a bunch of lawyers told you've got a couple of days to write <laughs> the conclusion to this entire saga and by the way legally you can't use any of this 
and they turned around and made a story. Mm. And then they did it all again with Tom and the Rani a year later. Yeah. You know? Why do you think Terror of the Vervoids is the best story of the Colin Baker era? Because I just enjoy watching it. And because Colin is enjoyable in it. He's not enjoyable in season 22 for you. Colin is less enjoyable in season 22 for me. I think Colin has all these rough edges in season 22. Whereas in Vervoids, he's just fun. He's just delightful. He's very doctorish. And although I think that season 23 Perry is better than Mel, I actually think that Mel is better than season 22 Perry, who clearly just doesn't want to be there and he's stuck in this sort of abusive relationship. At least Mel wants to travel with the Doctor, is excited about the idea of travelling to other worlds. That's something compared to, you know, Perry, who was always whinging, Tegan, who was always whinging, Adric, who, you know, I like but was moaning a lot. At least Mel's having fun. Mm -hmm. And at least Colin's having fun. I guess the thing would be is in a broader sense, TV, certainly at the time the Key to Time series was being made, didn't really do arcs. Um, I mean, you had stuff that was obviously done as a serial, but what, what we would now define as arc television, where you have the whole unfolding narrative and you have the big revelation probably part way through and you have the big cliffhangers and, and then the setup for the final episode, really would have been foreign, I, I think, to TV at that time. Um, well, I mean, you've got the proto-arcs in Black 7. Well, you have, but I mean, Black 7 is done in such a way, they're standalone episodes, and really, if you just dipping in and out of Black 7, there's still enough going on. And I guess you can say, I mean, again, given I've just sort of said I don't really remember much of Trial, but I mean, the, the key to time season, those stories pretty much, all, with, with exception perhaps the Armageddon factor, those stories really stand on their own um, without any of, the, any of the key to time stuff in them. Power of Kroll? Look, the end of it is obviously Kroll has, has swallowed or whatever the, the segment. But you, I guess you would have the thing you would find another way of defeating Kroll um, instead of touching with a magic wand. I mean, you would find another... You would have another way of defeating Kroll, probably whether they did actually depth charge him or something, um, to, to resolve that. I mean, you look at the androids of Tara, I mean, let's face it, they uncover the, the segment in the first two minutes. Um, and then the rest of it is really about just escaping. So... Yeah, look, look, Stones of Blood, that doesn't matter at all. No, Pirate well, Black. I mean, the Stones of Blood really is just suddenly, it's almost an afterthought. It's just, oh, hang on, grab the <laughs> necklace. <laughs> but, but again, Pirate Planet is fairly fundamental to the plot. That the, 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 the captain's plan can't work because one of the planets is the key to time. Yes, but again, I think you're probably right around that. Oh, sure, but, yeah. but it, it was still yes. part of the story. Mm. But I think you've got... Yeah, so whereas now, I mean, audiences, when really when the show comes back, and particularly now, because I, I think there's an argument perhaps the arcs have got, the arcs have got heavier, really, as the season, as the newest series has gone on. Oh, do you think? Well, yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> sorry. I guess one of the points we're going to make about the new series arcs is that they've obviously got a lot heavier and a lot more detailed as the show has moved on. I mean, if you think about the very first season, I mean, well, the first two seasons, we have Bad Wolf and Torchwood mentioned in every single episode. And then really the payoff is, okay, at the end of the season we find out what those words mean. Um, compared to, to when you get into the Matt Smith era where, you know, unless you're watching and paying a lot of attention, uh, like I wasn't, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the seasons really have just become what's all that about. Yeah. I mean, that torture arc is really just an advertising, isn't it? Well, really? it is, it's, really. It's not, it, it's, it's not an arc. It's, it's not. Saxon, I thought, in, in Series 3 was actually quite good. It did sort of pay off. With regards to the classic series, um, given the fact that they were existing in a two-channel environment, um, 
I think that from the beginning to the end, I think they were there weren't that many distractions so that you could actually tune into it and looking at the ratings say for trial I mean you know the ratings had collapsed because of the, they'd been away for 18 months but four and a half to five and a half million people week in week out were tuning in to, to watch it so if you got to episode 14 and it appears that most of the audience who tune in for episode one did you could still um, you still sort of work out what had been going on hmm. and I think the same could be said for the key to time and Richard's right I think we're all right in regards to at certain points during the key to time the, the whole reason for the season it was right in the background all was resolved at the very beginning and they just had another exciting adventure in time and space so well, you know they sort of have the obligatory mention of the Black Guardian just, just so you, you know, yeah, keep yeah. in mind this is well, that, that's actually what we're doing yeah and I mean look it, it, it was a, it, interesting and, and you, you have to sort of give plaudits to you know, Williams um, and, the, and the production team for deciding to go down that path because it was, it was something new and it was something different for Doctor Who I'm surprised we haven't actually talked about the three-story arc at the end oh, of the yeah. Tom East, Baker series East and the beginning and, um, of yeah, and, and Patterson, because that's yeah. thematically. I mean, we're talking about well, death and renewal, entropy, and, and 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 life and that sort of thing. And I think that's very very tightly woven well, together. I guess you've got the Black Guardian arc as well. We well, could do that as well. Yeah. We could do that as well. But I mean, I, I think they work better because. It's not an entire season that's been sort of devoted to it. It's it's a series of, of, of episodes that are linked together. Mm. And, and indeed, if you want character arcs, look at the Mike Yates arc, mm. where he you know is introduced as a very traditional British officer, young officer in the unit stories. He goes through. He then goes through all that happens to him in the Green Death. Has a pretty terrible time of it. Gets brainwashed or you know corrupted by the people in. The invasion of the dinosaurs turns out to be a traitor then comes back at the end of the season and gets to redeem himself you know a very nice little character arc mm, and then winds up with Tommy I was about to say and then gets to come back in the new adventures and stoop Tommy but don't can it so you've mentioned the new series I mean for me the new series with regards to the arcs I think that they're actually a blight and a cancer on the series I think too much time and effort is devoted to you know building up something in the first episode setting it through all the subsequent episodes and then warping the end of the series or a particular season by having to resolve it and I think the storytelling suffers more often than not um, and RTDs were more ad hoc to the detriment of the series and I think Moffat's were too seated into the stories to the detriment of the series have, have the Moffat arcs got better now we're in the no, era? no 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 do you think no. I, I actually am going to sit here and say that his in inverted commas hybrid arc is the absolute nadir of the arc concept because it, look Series 6 doesn't work for me. I've said that many times before. But at least that arc actually does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you want to invest in it, there is stuff to find. I don't think the stories are very good. That's my problem with the series, not that it's got an arc per se. I just don't like the story. The hybrid is, I think, the worst of the arcs because what you have is suddenly, after 50-something years of Doctor Who and however many millennia his life now encompasses, suddenly everybody's talking about the hybrid. Missy's talking about the hybrid. The Davros is talking about the hybrid. They've all just discovered this hybrid thing. The Time Lords are talking about it. It's come from nowhere. It's just seeded all through this thing. Suddenly, oh, have you heard about the hybrid? What do you think of the hybrid? Suddenly, everyone's talking about it. And then they get to the end and they go, well, so what's the hybrid? I don't know, maybe then. <laughs> yeah, like, and then nobody mentions the hybrid again. Hmm. So it's as though the entire cast of the universe knows that for one series year, everyone talks about the hybrid, and then it's never even mentioned again. Hmm. And it's never resolved. It's just, well, it could be them, could be us. I don't know. What, what, 
What's that about? And it also, we saw it in the most recent series where they had those three stories in the middle, slap bang in the middle. Oh, yeah. Like a turd that dropped out of the sky. Yeah. I mean, you have an idea. Obviously, Moffat had some sort of idea that he wanted to run with, but then he devoted, he handed the stories over to three different writers. Hmm. And there's no coherence in it whatsoever. And it just gets progressively worse and worse. That was a drag on that series. To the point, yeah, yeah. to the point where it basically kills the momentum of the series for that year. Stone dead. Awful. So, in terms of Chibbers going forward, do you think he'll do arcs? That rumour, the whole series long story, isn't it? Well, do you think, based on what we've seen in terms of Broadchurch and things like that, he'll be more successful at it? I, I'd say yes, that he will engage in a bit of an arc, because um, he, he hires the same actors, uh, has the same production crew, um, his name really was made with Broadchurch, which is, you know, series-long story stories. I think he'll do the same, because I think it's something that he's familiar with and finds easy to do. I think, unfortunately we are in the era of the arc or more correctly we are in the era of the binge watch serial yes mm. and, and this is something I think we'll talk about when we get to our very last segment today there is now a lot of very good television where you can pop out 8, 10, 13 episodes that is one long story it's very arbitrarily divided up into episodes um, you look at something like House of Cards basically they get to about 50 something minutes and decide to stop and then they just get on to the next chapter they, you could watch House of Cards as one seamless um, show without episode breaks quite easily. Well, well not anymore. Well, not anymore, you can't. No. Um, but but that's the same for many of these other shows. That, that They are very successful, and look, a lot of them are very good. And Doctor Who, in the same way that Eric Saywood aped what was going on in the 80s and the 80s, Doctor Who of 2017 is aping this stuff. Perfectly valid. My concern, though, is that to me, Doctor Who has always been against that, because the concept of Doctor Who is that you go and have adventures in space and time, so every story you're somewhere different. Mm. Every story, it's a new adventure, it's new, it's exciting, it's interesting, and if Doctor Who loses that, I think that would be to its detriment. I get why it's happening, it could well be popular, it could well be successful, don't argue with that, but... I think that limiting Doctor Who's scope to one story would be a mistake if ever it happened. I don't know if Chibbers is going to do it. That's the rumour. But, look, it could just be one story that involves... It could be much like the key to time. It, okay, there is one story in there, but they go to six different places. And that's wonderful. That would be great. I'll be the first person to say that's wonderful. I hope that it is more like that and they don't limit the scope of the show. And welcome to the Target Book Club. Yay! Yay. Um, in this round of our Target Book Club, uh, we were all tasked with reading a Terence Dix novelised story, and I have in my hot little hands uh, The Wheel in Space, which has got um, a fairly anodyne cover. But anyway, um, this book comes out in the era of the extended Target novelisations. So uh, was, uh, Ian, was it Ian Robinson? Who was the range editor at that time? Nigel, Nigel Robinson. Nigel Robinson. And his remit uh, was to get the actual writers in, more or less, and get them to uh, expand the book. Now, Terence Dix, I don't think, wrote The Wheel in Space, if I open it up to David Whitaker. Thanks for cutting my lunch, David Whitaker. Would you like to that? And, um, and, and, and good old Uncle Terry uh, novelised it. Despite the fact that the remit was to write a bit more, uh, this is actually goes to about 140, exactly 143 pages, it is more of the same from Terence Dix. I think it, uh, just reading it, it is a lot of... Uh, he's got the scripts in front of him, uh, basically, the dialogue is essentially the same, um, and uh, he just adds in a bit of padding in terms of descriptions and stuff like that. Uh, there is the infamous line about uh, someone taking Zoe over his knee and slapping her on the backside. Uh, Terence likes using the word grotesque 
uh, quite a few times to describe um, the effects of the Cybermen shooting people. Does it have a chapter called Escape to Danger? <laughs> uh, well, if I actually open up to the chapter listing, let's have a look. We've got the Unseen Enemy, Trojan Horse, clearly a callback to the Myth Makers, Poison in the Air. So, obviously... Well, that's when they had to turn off the sexual air supply. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there is no, uh, no, no title that you uh, mentioned there, Richard. It is a pedestrian read. It is, uh, it is okay. In the absence of the most of the episodes, uh, probably your best opportunity to uh, relive the story, except there is an audio version. I have to say, I actually listened to the Wheeling Space audio when I was driving through the Hamptons on my holiday over summer, and I actually thought the second half is significantly better than the first half. Essentially because it takes three episodes for the Cybermen to get into the story. Once they do, it's actually a pretty good adventure. Mm. Unfortunately, episodes four and five are missing. And I think they'll probably be the best too. And I think also episode one, which at least has the servo robot doing servo robot stuff, would be good to see. Yeah. Whereas episode three is really just let's all explain what's going on with the plot and introduce the Cybermen. So I actually think the Will of Space has got a lot to offer. Mm-hmm. And that book, though, that you've got on your shelf, wasn't there an incident at the warehouse that the, the, the warehouse burnt down? Mm-hmm. So it's actually quite a rare book. That, that to is, get. The is that right? of the targets, yes. Yeah. What, the paperback or the hardcover? Oh. Assuming there is a hardcover. Uh, what number is that? 130. Yeah, I think that was yeah, a hardcover. Was, was one of the last hardcovers. So is it the hardcover that's really. No, the paperback. Well, the hardcovers are rare anyway, but no, it's the paperback. Because um, a lot of, there weren't very many of those made into circulation. Mm, I, I do I do remember when I sold my targets, I was offered fifty sixty pounds for that. Did you accept fifty or sixty pounds? I may have done. <laughs> no. Did, uh, did you report that income to the tax office? <laughs> I may not have done. <laughs> that was me. It's like chemtrails, people. They're all real. <laughs> there is a black helicopter hovering out the window. We just can't see it. And so, who's next? Richard, me. So, what season were you allocated, Richard? Um, I had season twenty, and I chose the Five Doctors. Did you read it? Oh no! <laughs> yeah, of course I read it. Five Doctors is one I do remember quite well because I think uh, we all remember it quite well. I think yeah, so. it, it is one of the ones I had on tape, and I did watch it numerous times over the, the years. Obviously, it's Terence novelising his own story. In England, I think this was actually released a couple of days before it had been on TV, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, which wasn't the case here. So, I mean, I didn't read it until some time afterwards. But uh, it is basically Terence novelising his own story. So, it does follow pretty closely to what you see on screen uh, down to the script. I would say there are a few little variances in the script, which perhaps are him working off maybe his final script rather than the, the, the transmitted version. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does stick pretty closely to what you see on screen. Probably the only real change is that he writes a scene for Susan being time scooped uh, and appearing, yep, appearing the thing, which obviously you don't see on screen. Um, I think that was primarily because I only had her for one day or something. I think Caroline Ford could only do one day, I think. What, in the middle of a very busy career? <laughs> <laughs> and David Bradley wasn't available to do Hartnell to do that day. Yeah, no, I think, I think she was the last minute of the cast, because just, just going off on a slight tangent, if you watch the, in The Five Doctors where they do the pans across the table, a lot of the early pans, her little figurine's not on there, mm-hmm. and then one of the later ones, suddenly she is. So, oh. yeah, I think, I think she was a reasonably late addition to the cast. Hmm. Well, there you go. But I could be wrong. I probably need an Andrew Pixley or somebody to come and uh, straighten me out. But yeah, if you if you watch when you get your Five Doctors DVD out, if you watch when they're, they're painting across the game table, 
she, she's not in the in the early in the episode where they do the pen. She's not in it at all. And then later on, they do a pen much later in the story. There's a little figure in there for her. Wasn't there a scene in the book where the Autons are in it? Is that right? Um, there was a scene in the script where yeah. the Autons are in it because um, Sarah Jane was where, where she does that rather sort of lame fall down the gentle slope. Rather, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite convincing. Not. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was originally to see a group of Autons and in either being attacked by them or escaping from them, she actually goes over a cliff, which is where the Doctor comes and saves her. And actually, in the in the novel, yes, it, it isn't actually a slope. She does go over a cliff. And then she's hanging on to like a, a branch when the Doctor suddenly yeah. comes and oh, saves her. Yeah. Don't have to contend with a budget. You can do whatever you like. That's right. And pay them off its direction. Yeah, I, I think the direction is a lot more advanced for there than anything else. Mm, absolutely yeah. true. So, I enjoyed it. Look, I quite like the Fight Doctors for what it is. I mean, it's an anniversary story, so you know they're going to wheel out as many of the older fans and as many of the old tropes as they can. So, And, and that's a pretty faithful storytelling. So. Um, with a cool silver cover. Oh, I love the cover. I, there's a fellow in my class who got a pencil, the end of a pencil, and rubbed it across the front cover because he said it would make it look better. He was an asshole. <laughs> was this your personal copy? Yeah, yeah. What up? <laughs> This is a side tangent. And, and after you'd smashed his head repeatedly into the desk and been suspended for a week, how did that, how did that fan out? And he got used to it, goes, I like punching desks. <laughs> got to read five boxes again. No, as a side note, uh, Herndl versus Bradley. Uh, I guess having not really seen... But surely the two-minute clip is enough to tell you that Bradley will be crap. <laughs> yes, as the point said, if you accept Richard Herndl, you have to accept David Bradley. I don't have to accept anything. <laughs> I said at the time that an adventure in space and time aired that I thought Bradley did a really good performance as William Hartnell. Yes. Lousy yeah. as the first Doctor. Yeah. Yep. Whether that's improved in the Christmas special, well, we'll know. No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. That, that you, look, I mean, that two-minute clip didn't exactly inspire me with no. confidence for Christmas, but, <laughs> uh, but then again, I mean, again, look, I never really expected anything much of the Christmas special, so not, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to be fulfilled this time as well. <laughs> All right. Well, attention uh, over. Who's next? Young Dave. Well, Mark, you very kindly allocated me season 15. I did. <laughs> Which means every single story is a Terrence Dix yeah, so novel, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I had a lot to choose from. So the agony of choice. I decided to read The Invisible Enemy. Oh, hmm. not, not horror fang rock. Or Underworld. Now, Rob talked about his book being from... Um, the longer era of the targets. <laughs> the Invisible Enemy is 110 pages, Ooh. and I read it in about an hour. <laughs> Does it have the large print like Destiny of the Daleks with <laughs> going on the bigger font? The Doctor, page two, Daleks, yeah. Uh, now, in terms of Terence Tropes, it doesn't have a chapter called Escape to Danger, but it does have Death Sentence and Inferno. And Blonde Cutler. <laughs> now, look, uh, all jokes aside, I picked The Invisible Enemy because... Earlier this year, I actually watched the show for the first time in quite a long time, and I must admit, it is one of the rare examples in Who where the special effects just do not allow the story to work. So I thought, let's actually read the book and see if that makes a difference, and the short answer to that is yes. This is actually a really interesting book to read. Terence does a lot of work just trying to expand the universe they're in. So particularly in the first chapter, there's a lot of stuff going on about who these people in the space core or whatever it is are, you know, what Titan does, how the Empire works, how their careers work, and, you know, everybody who wants to go and do an ex- cool, exciting exploration of the galaxy has to do their six months on Titan first and all that sort of stuff. And he actually does expand it quite a lot. The stuff about the virus actually gets a bit of expansion. So that's all quite well done, and I thought... You know, he really made the stuff in the Doctor's brain work. 
in a way that it just never was going to on TV. So four points for that. Uh, I also give him points for readability. Uh, look, again, it is not difficult to read. I mean, I was ploughing through it. But if you were a, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old boy like we all were, mm. very accessible, very enjoyable. Uh, where I'll take away a couple of points are that stuff that is very perfunctory in the show is equally perfunctory in here. Uh, to the point, I actually didn't realise that Parsons had been killed until about five pages later, <laughs> where I thought, hang on, hasn't Parsons been killed by now? And I had to go back to find the half a sentence that deals with him being shot. <laughs> like, literally half a sentence. So there is stuff there that clearly, you know, Dick's had a deadline at this point, clearly had a word limit at this point, and there's stuff that just has to be got through. You had an unknown tax liability as well. <laughs> <laughs> so look, as, as, a, as a read, it was thoroughly enjoyable. Is it one of the later ones, you know, like Remembrance or uh, Battlefield or that? No, of course not. But it was very enjoyable. And I know a lot of people, particularly in the UK, who didn't have the many, many repeats that we enjoyed in Australia and, you know, didn't get to see Tom Baker pretty much most of the year round every year. Uh, you know, found these stories first time by the Target novel and didn't see them for years. I could imagine if you had read the Target novel, if that was your first exposure to The Invisible Enemy, that would be a really good impression made on you. And then you saw that the Doctor's brain was a bunch of black drapes. <laughs> and you may be disappointed. The only other point I'll make that's not Terence's fault is that whilst he goes to a lot of trouble to really make the nucleus of the swarm sound interesting, look different, very exciting and complicated, unfortunately the cover has a pretty accurate rendering of the prawn that we see in the show, which kind of detracts from it. It looks like he's wearing pants, too, because it's a Tom Baker's arm there. Tom Baker's being stalked by a prawn, so... <laughs> so yeah, look, called Lala. So, yeah, look, from, from, from a novel that is from that infamous Terence was churning them out one a month period, mm. I got a lot out of this one, I've got to say, and I'm really grateful that I read it. So I thought that season 15 was a curse. It was actually a blessing, Mark. Now, what season did we allocate you? Uh, you actually allocated me season 21. Actually, there was two choices. It was Caves and Warriors of the Deep. Now, I went with Warriors of the Deep because we all know how good Caves is. Warriors of the Deep, less so. So I thought I'd just uh, go back and read the book in it. And it was a vast improvement of the, on the television version, which, let's be honest, isn't hard. Again, it's a bit of a workmanlike effort, to be honest, uh, a bit like season 15, but you know, he does, again, expand and, in some cases, deviates on the story. A couple of exceptions to me that really sort of stuck out were Dr. Solo uh, comes across as a more sympathetic uh, character in the story. And, no, and, no Well, I was just going to say, um, she's actually persuaded by uh, Nilsson that the Eastern Bloc has all the, all the uh, solutions to the world problems. I was going to mention, but not karate kicking, obviously. Uh, goes into much more expansion about the Merkur's creation and its uh, cyborg enhancements. The TV inversion implies that the, the sea devils are hibernating in a bunker uh, beneath the ocean floor, but in, in the novelisation, they're actually hibernating in the lower depths of the Solarian craft, waiting to, to be uh, waken up. So there's a few deviations there from the, from the television version. And I always thought that in the book, uh, that it referenced that the base was falling apart and the lighting was dark and, and everything like that. But actually, it reflected the TV design and the lighting, like it was all brightly, uh, brightly lit and, and things like that, and, and it was all stark and, and everything was all impressive. So I just had that in my head that the novelisation actually talked about the, 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 the base in, in dis, 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 disrepair, but it wasn't. It was just a script thing. It was a script thing, yeah. So, uh, look, you know, the, the great thing about this segment has been just 
pulling the, the Target book off the shelf. I haven't read that book since it came out in 1984. Mm. And I suppose it's like putting on an old record, you know, you sort of go back and uh, wallow in a bit of nostalgia. And I thoroughly enjoyed uh, reading it. And I probably will go now check out Case of Androzani uh, to see how Terence uh, tackles that. Because I thought he actually got a really good handle on the Fifth Doctor, Tegan and Turtler. So your curse was my blessing as well. So I really enjoyed it. Actually, season 21 is one of my favourite seasons anyway. So it, it's it, all it's one of mine as well. I yeah. think there's a lot of good stuff in there. I think we need to make the point, having made this the Terrence Sticks round, people give, do give him a lot of stick. Remember when we were back in fandom, you know, 20 plus years ago, and those later titles were coming out, and it was a bit of a joke. Mm-hmm. His books are incredibly accessible and incredibly readable, and that is a deceptively hard thing to do. Especially for children. I think children's writing, or children's book writing, is very hard. I mean, I know there's a burgeoning young adults audience there, here at the moment. Um, but you, you, you have to, it takes a specific skill set to be able to write to that level. To be accessible without being patronising. Correct. Yeah. And I think Terence Dix, uh, not only with his Doctor Who novelisations, but he was also prolific in other children's books as oh, well in that particular was. era. So he obviously had the knack for doing it. And more generally, I agree with you, Mark. I really haven't read a lot of Target novels over the last 20 years, but this has encouraged me to read a whole lot more, and I'm mm. going to read a whole lot more. And now it's time for our annual Fan Wank of the Year Awards. So if you don't know, uh, basically every year we uh, give out this award to persons who have uh, made their contribution to Doctor Who by delving continually into its past and in some cases making a business from it. So we might mix things up a bit and go, Richard, who is your Fan Wank of the Year Award going to this year? Well, I was looking the other day online and I, I saw this new book and it's Professor Travers, who's like a third-tier character, <laughs> being partnered with H.G. Wells. And I thought, no, I'm sorry, Rob, I couldn't resist singing that in. <laughs> Wait till the audio adaption comes out. I'm doing the voices. It did occur to me that, you know, Rob and Mark have made a lot of fun of the Jago and Lightfoot series. At least those two are in the same story, Rob. <laughs> but Strax is in the next book. <laughs> can't say anything. <laughs> no, no, God love you. Um, <laughs> we're, we're looking forward to reading it. We're very excited for you. Thank you. Uh, I was looking online, but uh, I sort of feel a bit bad picking on Big Finish again. <laughs> but, uh, and you're all laughing, but there's a new couple of audios coming out of Tom Baker with River Song. <laughs> and what? I just thought, yeah, well, that was, that was what I thought. River Song meets the fourth Doctor, and I just thought, why? Look, I get there are people who really embraced the character of Riversong. Why? We're not. <laughs> no, I was about to say, I don't think any of them are in this room. No. But <laughs> And look, I get that for some fans, she was a very important and... Well, what's the word I'm looking for? Totemic. Yes, she, she was a great character. Doctor's love. Oh, Jesus. Is, is there a sound effect of like... Oh! <laughs> I don't need it, you did a great job. Um... I just don't see why you really need to partner her with with previous doctors, like classic series doctors. It's a marketing choice. But, well, clearly, it's a marketing but, but choice. But in all seriousness, if you were someone who embraced River Song and and really you know got into Big Finish, well, would you necessarily want to read about her adventures with with the Fourth Doctor? It's a very interesting choice, given that part of the shtick of the River Song character was that very tedious flirtation between her and the Doctor. So pairing up with a Doctor from the era when that stuff just didn't happen, to the point, you know, you have Tom's She's a Beautiful Woman, probably line. Uh, yeah, uh, good award, good nomination. 
Dave, your nomination. Mine also revolves around Tom Baker. Now, recently we've discovered that Tom is doing some sort of extra scenes for this new Sharda DVD. So we've had pictures circulating around of Tom as an 80-something-year-old in the Fourth Doctor's costume. That's fine, that's nice. There are people now who are openly speculating as to whether he's actually playing the Fourth Doctor or playing the curator from the end of Day of the Doctor. Guys, that's taking things too far. That is Fanwake. That is my nomination. Mark, what's your nomination for Fanwake of the Year? Now, I have a joint winner this year, Dave. It's actually going to Stephen Moffat and Big Finish. So, uh, Big Finish, the company who just like sure gyrates their private parts astride a large cannon with the words Doctor Who graffiti across it, have clearly excelled themselves following up on their successful Churchill meets the Bandrill Ambassador box set with a further <laughs> Adventures of Jenny Who as a full-length 23-CD box set. Oh. Big Finish again. This is the Doctor's daughter, Jenny Who, right? So, again, the business model for Big Finish is predicated on actors who have been in Doctor Who for more than five minutes. Uh, look at the War Master, and, of course, the uh, original TARDIS crew have been replaced by a whole lot of other... Uh, people from the uh, Doctor Who docudrama from uh, 2013. The first Doctor Adventures, of course, uh, ties in with uh, Stephen Moffat, whose uh, tenure will culminate with uh, lots of references to Tenth Planet, uh, the new Ben and Polly, and God knows what else he throws up at us. So, uh, just like the joint recipients of the 2014 Nobel Peace Prize, I not only present the Fan Rank of the Year Award to uh, Big Finish and Stephen Moffat, but also the Fan Glaze Award as well. Angry. So, so angry. <laughs> I've learned from the best. <laughs> I've learned from the best. So, it now falls upon me to Do give my Fan Wank of the Year Award. Do I drum roll? Someone's at the door. No. <laughs> um, the decision to... Now, I know this is a show about time travel, ostensibly, but the decision to shoehorn an extra adventure into the last five minutes of the Tenth Planet for the First Doctor uh, is clearly... Uh, well, for me, it's the biggest of big fan wank uh, moments, I think, in the series. Um, it just It's incomprehensible why Moffat would want to do this in the first place. Uh, as a secondary fan wank award, uh, casting David Bradley uh, as the first Doctor, I think is going to be a big mistake. I know we mentioned it before. It was only two minutes granted, but his performance was incredibly stilted uh, in that clip that we saw. I don't think that he looked comfortable. I don't think he sounded comfortable. I think the whole endeavour is going to completely undermine Capaldi's exit from the series. Christmas special is meant to celebrate uh, Capaldi in, in a sense. We're going to have apparently an extended appearance by the new Doctor, undermining Capaldi's final appearance, and we've got another Doctor appearing as well. So, you know, what the F is going on there, and the F stands for fan wank. <laughs> so David Bradley's stilted dialogue might have been because of the corpse of Hartnell was the smell of it wafting oh, over oh, and uh, oh, <laughs> putting him off his lines Rob oh, perhaps. maybe perhaps there you go so that's our fan rank of the year awards those uh, awards will be flying over <laughs> to their recipients when we open up our Patreon account do you want to quickly go around and talk about what have we been watching this year apart from Doctor Who well, I haven't been watching any Doctor Who, so that's pretty easy. Well, Richard, what have you been watching? <laughs> uh, not Doctor Who, yeah. Um, did you watch any of Series 10, apart from the first episode? No, I watched all of Series okay. 10. Okay. Well, how oh. can you say you didn't watch Doctor Who? Because you did. Oh, I did. I'm in real Doctor Who. <laughs> Fair call. <laughs> no, I did... Yes, I have actually watched the Doctor Who. I did watch all of Series 10. Mm-hmm. I was entertained by some of them. 
<laughs> in terms of other stuff I've watched this year, uh, I'm currently, I've watched a lot of the goodies, strangely enough. What would uh, you have done that for, Richard? Oh, I couldn't begin to imagine. <laughs> Personal pleasure. In all honesty, yes, we are doing a goodies podcast at the moment. And look, I have to say, it has been great watching them again. Um, it actually is a bit sad that it's really taken doing the podcast actually to pull the goodies out and go back through them again, actually, because there's been some great episodes in there. Um, other than that, I'm currently watching or working my way through The Punisher, mm. which is the new Marvel series. Every time I hear that, I just hear the words in my head, kill them all, Frank. Is that basically <laughs> what it's about? <laughs> uh, there's certainly a fair bit of uh, Frank taking care of business. In the, I'm just over halfway through it uh, at the time of recording. It's a bit of a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a slow burn as Iron Fist was. I was going to say that, yeah. I think we are sort of starting to build a crescendo now, so uh, in exactly the same way that Iron Fist didn't. How many episodes is it? Uh, 13. See, I reckon eight's probably the right number for that. Like, Defenders was the right... That's the common problem that people are now saying about some of the Netflix series, that there's four or five or six episodes of story spun out into 12 or 13. The, the, yeah. the, the Punisher one is quite a... It's, it, it's not dumb. It's not a superhero series, really. It's a, it's a conspiracy um, it, it's a conspiracy drama. Nice. Um, it is quite well done. Look, it is a bit of a slow burn, and it does take an episode or two to get going. I um, mean, it do- didn't have. Uh, I mean, yes, yes, there is Frank killing people, but it didn't have probably. I mean, when they launched the first Daredevil um, in that second episode, they had that massive hallway fight mm. that that really just really like, oh wow, they can do this now. Mm. It's very violent. It's very nasty. It's very bleak. Yes. Um, which is so it's Garth Ennis era um, Punisher. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I think. Um, speaking of Garth Ennis, I actually very much like to see them take on the. the and I think we've talked about this off air, but um, <laughs> take take on the the Slavers storyline that he did. I, I want them to do the end go <laughs> one shot comic strip. I think I think that might be a little bit too dark. <laughs> Deep cuts there, Richard. There's three people out there know what we're talking about, I think. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I, I'm not one of them, I'll say that now. <laughs> uh, let, let's say it's uh, the Punishers, the Gar- Garth Ennis's. The final Punisher story. Yes, it is the, well, it's the final <laughs> story, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it is a slow. They're push. shrugging their shoulders. No, <laughs> I can lend it to you. I'll have plenty of free time post February, so yeah, yeah, you, can, you can have your eyes open, by it. <laughs> um, those of you out there who have read it will know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, yes, so it is a slow burn. I, I do think that is a thing. I mean, the, the Punisher probably feels like about a 10-episode series that, that suddenly been told it had to find another yeah. three. I think Iron Fist was... Well, I keep dumping on Iron Fist, but I really found that quite tedious. It is probably about a five- or six-episode uh, thing that, that, that's been spanned about double its length. Yeah. So I did watch The Defenders. And I, I thought that was quite good. Um, probably the thing, actually, that I, I wasn't expecting when I watched that was I sort of reintroduced the four characters. I was actually very much the only one I found I was actually really, really interested in, in sort of catching up with again. Actually, was Jessica Jones. Yeah, mm. I, I think because we just had Daredevil, mm. and I wasn't really interested in Iron Fist. And, and look, Luke Cage hadn't been that long before either. So uh, she was actually the one. And I, I'm actually I must admit that out of the upcoming ones they've announced, it's Jessica Jones series two actually is the one I'm waiting for. I think she's the more interesting character of yeah. most of them. Um, so that, that that's probably enough waffle for me. I have also recently started watching a thing called The Good Place. Yes, if anyone's so seen that? I'm episode five of the first series. Yeah, and are you enjoying good. it? Yeah, I am. It's 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 a bit mindless, but I'm actually really enjoying it. I'm at the end uh, at the end of the first season. Okay, so no, it's good. Yeah, I enjoy it. I'm enjoying it. So 
Yeah, good pick. There you go. Dead Dancing's great. Yes. <laughs> right. You, Rob. The one show that stood out for me this year was uh, Breaking Bad. I completely missed Breaking Bad when it first started in the late uh, aughts, yep. as we, we, we apparently some people call it. So um, I managed to pick up the box sets, uh, very, very cheap, uh, and I sat down, we were, my wife and I were basically watching an episode of Nice, you know, over a few months. It, look, um, it's not for everyone. It is and does get progressively darker and more bleak. Uh, just, <laughs> yes. a warning, just a warning to people out there. But it is it is incredibly well written. It is incredibly well acted. It, it, it presents you with a number of moral dilemmas and qualms, which, sadly, I am not a morally strong enough character to avoid. I think I'll probably follow the same, you know, same choices, perhaps. Uh, when you're in a desperate situation, you make desperate decisions, don't you? But, um... I think it manages to follow through on its beginning uh, with its finish, and it, it look I really really enjoyed. It. And of all of television I've probably watched in the last few years, this is a show that I'll probably come back to in the next couple of years and watch all over again. Yeah, I must admit, I, it, it is on my list to, to rewatch. I love Breaking Bad. Have you moved into Better Call Saul? Yes, uh, we're up to date at the moment, so oh, yeah. Yeah, looking forward. Did you enjoy the last season? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah? yeah. I actually thought this season was better than the second season. Yeah. The, the, the character of Saul, uh, as depicted in Breaking Bad, is nowhere near what you see in, um, in Better, Call, Better Call Saul. No. Uh, so how you knit those two together, I, I'd be interested to see how they... Well, it's been... I know they've been guaranteed a fourth season. I don't know beyond that, but... So they may accelerate it just to catch just to just, just to touch. It I, I have found... Probably my one negative with Better Call Saul was actually probably including the Mike storyline in it too, because that's a I'm actually finding that a much more interesting storyline. Yes. Uh, than, than following Saul's. Yes. Oh, Jimmy's uh, Jimmy's story. Though hopefully the actor who plays Mike actually manages to live long enough to complete the series <laughs> because he is looking very, 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 very yeah. old. Yeah, he is noticeably older than he yeah. was in Breaking Bad. Yeah. But David Bradley will be free soon, so they can just recast yeah. him and zip him over to But I must admit, he's great. Cool. Dave. Look, there's a few things I wanted to mention. Uh, one thing I will say, look, all joking aside, I think this is the first year, probably in maybe 10 years, that all four of us around this table have watched every episode of the new series of Doctor Who and basically enjoyed the new series. And I actually must admit, I very much enjoyed sharing that experience with you guys. It's nice to just be able to say we all watched Doctor Who and we all enjoyed it mostly. Um, so I thought that was actually a pretty good thing this year. I haven't seen a lot of television this year. Uh, I am going to break my record for the number of movies I've seen in the cinema in, in the course of a year. That record stands at 51, and I'm going to break that this year. Wow. So I've seen a lot of films. In terms of television, look, I've gone back and dipped into a bit of uh, Next Generation. I've dipped into a bit of Babylon 5. Um, there's a few shows that I've watched, Third and Reasons Why, I got a lot out of. Uh, the royal dramas, The Crown and Victoria, mm. I've got a lot out of those as well. Yeah. Look, they are a little bit dramatised for the audience, but actually The Crown in particular is very close to reality yeah. and very, very worthwhile. In terms of sci-fi, Star Trek Discovery is one that I'm now up to date with, and look, I think that is very good science fiction. I think it is terrible Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I, I have watched that. Well, I must admit, I found it got a lot better when Jason Isaacs turned up. Yes, a lot better. Yes, um, and I must admit, he's—I'm finding actually he, he, he's easily the best thing in it for me. Oh yeah, look, I, I, I agree as well. There's, there's Jason Isaacs and some other cast members. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it is very much like that. Look, I think it's very entertaining and lavishly expensive science fiction. Uh, I don't think it's very good Star Trek. I am also going to give a shout out to a sitcom called Young Sheldon, 
which is a spin-off to The Big Bang Theory. Now, I dropped The Big Bang Theory years ago when it stopped being about a bunch of nerds talking about sci-fi and became about a bunch of women and their boyfriends because um, I just thought that wasn't the show I wanted to watch. Young Sheldon is very, very different. It tells the tale of the character of Sheldon growing up in Texas. It's done without a laugh track, which already sets a very different tone, but it is basically the story of what it's like to grow up different. So Sheldon is obviously you know, very smart. He's been accelerated. He's somebody you know in deepest red Texas, where you know it's all God and football and barbecues, not necessarily in that order. And for anybody who is somebody who grew up a bit different, wasn't one of the cool kids, I actually think there's a lot in here to resonate. I think it's actually very well done. I'll be interested to see if it keeps the audience it's got, because he's very unlike the Big Bang Theory. But I've got a lot of time for that series. But look, we are living in an age of television now where you can just find little 13-episode series and just find them yourself and watch them, whether it's 13 Reasons Why, uh, Suits I've seen, How to Get Away with Murder I'm not up to date with, but I have seen a bit of that. There's, there's just so much good television out there. But there's also a lot of good movies out there. Can I just throw in one other TV series? Yes. American Gods. Which I've not which seen. Which is based on the Neil Gaiman book, uh, American okay. Gods. Yep. Uh, lavishly shot, beautiful to look at. If you like your myths all mixed up together, okay. uh, Norse and American and some more, more, more modern myths, uh, it's, it's a really good show. And it's done by the same, or co written at least, by the same fellow who brought Star Trek Discovery back, uh, whose okay. name escapes me, who did the Hannibal series. Right, a few okay. years ago, and I can't remember his name. But it, American Gods is really, really good. Okay. One show I didn't mention, I've also been dipping back into, is The Bill. And I've just found that if I need sort of half an hour just to kill while I'm making and eating dinner or whatever, the bill is perfect for that. <laughs> and I've got to say, for something that was just churning out pop stories, you know, like a hundred episodes a season, there is some really, really good stuff yeah, in there. There is some great writing, some great performances. Look, Burnside is clearly, you know, the highlight of the whole lot, but I've really enjoyed watching the bill. And some of it is incredibly dark mm. and incredibly, like, just full on. I'd forgotten about and maybe I didn't appreciate it when I saw it when I was much younger so yeah that's another series I've yeah. got into there's, there's a lot of television around to watch I've actually watched a few of the bill recently as well I've been in hospital a couple of times recently and not being able to sleep at ungodly hours in the hospital mm-hmm. you're sort of channel surfing oh cool it's the bill <laughs> and ABC, uh, the ABC here are showing them I think at about 4.30 in the morning uh, two episodes a day and they're the older bill ones so they're sort of the Burnside era ones uh, and nice. I must admit they've been great to watch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mark um, actually, a lot of but you guys have been watching. I've been watching the same. So like Better Call Saul, Star Trek Discovery. I've actually really enjoyed it. I've been very disengaged from Star Trek for years. Oh, and for me, it's been a really sort of great jumping on point again. I understand people who've watched Next Gen and a lot of those star, of the Star Trek franchise uh, saying it's not what Gene Roddenberry would have wanted. But oh no, but he's twenty years dead. He's twenty years dead, right? So unless you can ask him by a séance, I don't know. I think it was one that episode with that communications tree that was a bit crap that was very that was a very that was, was original uh, Star Trek there but for me I've been looking forward to every Monday night I'll just put it on with, and watch it with the wife and uh, I've really really enjoyed Discovery actually mm. so it was really good do you guys uh, agree the best episode is the one with Dwight from The Office as Harry Mudd uh, yeah that was actually one, very good one where they meet him or the one where he takes over the, the one ship. where he takes over the yeah, ship yeah that was really good well, that was really good I must yeah. say I do also yeah. quite like the episode where um, Lorca basically just sends the Admiral <laughs> into a trap because she's about to take the ship away from him yeah. yes that was very good actually yeah <laughs> no, it's excellent uh, I've been watching uh, up to series 3 of the, of the Fall 
that uh, you put me on that right. That's been really good. Yeah, been watching that. Um, I've been starting to watch uh, Kirby Enthusiasm. The latest series is out. Oh yes, yes. Uh, the man is back. Yeah, and I must admit, it's actually it's as good as the earlier ones. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very, very good. Uh, I've been watching that. Red Dwarf just finished last week. Oh really? Yeah, there's a new series. I think series twelve. I think it is. I've heard that's been very, very well received. It's been really good. Yeah, I, I've struggled with the first couple and haven't gone back. Yeah, I, I just find it's trying too hard. In terms of what? In terms of just trying to relive the glory days, like I haven't minded them, but they must all be what in their fifties by now. Surely. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a few hair pieces going on there. Because because I know I watched the what's the season, the one where they think they uh, the season that we had the episode in where they think they found Jesus. Um, oh, whatever was, was that the last one? Yeah, that was the last one. Yeah. Because I was looking at them in that, and I'm thinking really. Danny John Jules is far too old to be dancing around dressed up as the cat. I mean, it's, it's sort of hard because Robert Llewellyn, unless you can hide under all the prosthetic. I, I just was watching that and I was just thinking, and some of it was funny, but I was just thinking, these guys are really just too old now mm. to be doing yeah, this. Yeah, I, I have got that sort of yeah. sense as well. But look, I'm sure I'll get back to it. Sometime. I do get your point, though, that it is trying to relive the, you know, the, seri- the series one and two. But... I think it's been fine. I think I've okay. had a lot of okay. laughs out of it. So, well, that's all okay. good. It, it, it entertains me for half an hour, which is good. Um, okay. House of Cards, yeah, watch that. What do you think of this series? Look, it was better than the, I think the series three when I talked about trying to do peace with Israel again. It was okay. Uh, obviously, be, be, be better than the three, four, not as good as one, two. Yeah, yeah, that's been the yeah. consensus. They haven't got the royal family. You know, they can't do um, the middle book. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. And, and look, I'm looking forward to episode one of the next series. <laughs> Presumably, it's going to be Mrs. Underwood getting a call, going, "Oh my God, Frank's been killed off screen." Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> In London. <laughs> yes. I heard they'd film the first two episodes. I think they're going to be refilled. Oh, they'll be refilled. They'll be like an explosion in the hotel across the yeah. across the yeah. way or something. Look, oh no, Frank's dead. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, his brother will come back. I started watching The Walking Dead and, and I've given up. Yeah, good, um, good choice. Because they were talking about it going for another 20 years. We're lucky to go for another 20 minutes. I mean, how many times can you just recycle the same plot lines, a bit an enemy, they fight? It's just getting really... Yeah. Well, Burnthal's in the Punisher now, so you can just move. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think that show has definitely <laughs> gone past its years yeah. by date. I've heard a lot of people talk about it, and nothing they've said about that has inspired me to watch it. No. Look, I like the first... Certainly the first season, but then when they got rid of... Um, I keep on forgetting people's names, but the bloke who brought it back, who... Has directed a lot of Stephen King uh, movies. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. As soon as they shafted him and moved him on, it just it become the stories. The whole idea behind the series, you, you can't have an ending. I mean, either they continually trek around the ruins of America, or they're all eaten. Mm. It's one or the other, and at some point that gets boring. Yeah. Well, they well, got they boring had, about three years ago. Yeah, it's getting ago. really boring now. Like you know, they, they brought Negan in, and, and look. It's yeah, it's not great at the moment, so I have to stop watching that. Narcos, I'm up to series three of that. Not as good as the first two, but I'll, I'll keep finishing it off as well. Yes, yeah, so that's basically what I've been watching. And uh, as you said, there's, there's lots of good TV on at the moment, and the Crown series two is about to start. So, yes. Series eleven is uh, starting off next year. And as we're not going to be around for that, uh, we thought we might just quickly go around the room and uh, get people's hopes and dreams for Series 11. Just one or two items. So let's start with randomly picked, Dave. My hopes and dreams are very simple, and they're basically the same as I said this time last year and the year before that. I want good, standalone stories 
I want good adventures in space and time. I want the Doctor and whoever her companions are to go to strange new worlds, to go into the past, to go into the future. I want lots of cool space corridors and space people doing space stuff. I want bug-eyed monsters. I want Doctor Who. Very simply, I, that's what I want. Look, obviously we're going to have the first female Doctor. I hope that that will be... Look, not ignored, but I hope that, that it does not get in the way or encumber the adventures. I don't think it will. But if it, become, if it becomes about that, I think that could actually be a bit of a drag for the audience. Yeah. Just right. move on and just, just tell us good stories. It's not hard. I was about to say, even though if the production team don't make a big deal out of it, the fact that we've now got a female locked up... Everyone else will. I was about to say, that's the thing. Even if the production team and the stories and that don't make a big deal out of the Doctor now being female, I, I can't see how nobody else will. I think that's all it's going to be about, really, next year. Yeah, the focus leading up to the first yeah. episode will be... Yeah, and I think probably as the series goes on, I think that's entirely what the focus will be, certainly outside the, in the media or outside the in the, the Twitter sphere or the blogosphere or the media sphere or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, I, I think that's going to be a very high part of it because I think if it's successful the narrative then is probably going to become well, why didn't they do this ten years ago or five years ago if it's not successful so the series is going to have had too hard of a reset. Look what you say is very true, I think that it's possible to separate the commentary from the show but you are absolutely right, I mean when we had the announcement of the Doctor's costume not that recently, you had every action from this is it, the show is over through to how dare you criticise Jodie Whittaker, she's the best Doctor ever. <laughs> this this comment before a second of film of her in the character has come has been screened. But, then, but people genuinely said that. So yeah. people people look there, there are people that are clearly casting their hopes and dreams in a very real way well, that's the thing. upon if, the character. If, that's the thing. If you've been sitting there hoping for the last two or three you know, last two generations that, that they're actually going to do something really different with the casting. This is your prayers have been answered. So you're going to get behind it no matter what, presumably. So I think you're probably going to get a fair bit of that sort of narrative as well. I, look, I don't care about the narrative. I care about a good story. And I hope that it doesn't become about her being a female any more than it was about McCoy being Scottish or you know any other characteristic you want to put out there about the Doctor. The Doctor should almost be, you know, to use Terence Dix's phrase... You know, the Doctor is just the Doctor, and you can insert almost any, any Doctor into any story in theory, and that's how it should be with this one. Except the War Doctor. As the French say, Canon Lanon. <laughs> Rob, uh, Hope, uh, in the lead up to Series 11, we see an end to the Omni Rumor once and for all. Not really linked to Series 11, well, well, anyway. we, we would hope in the form of yes. the floodgates <laughs> opening. Uh, prediction, uh, completely off the wall, uh, they bring back Paul again. Because it's something that they should do. <laughs> in episode one. <laughs> episode one. <laughs> well, I'd also love the Omni Room to win, but uh, a prediction. I have the fear that regardless of what this new season is in terms of content, I think the All Eyes will be elsewhere. Um, and I do think that may well be to the series' detriment. In terms of me with it, look, I will certainly watch the first episode, and I know we've made a lot of jokes over the years about me having not watched a lot of the new series. I can honestly say I have watched the first episode or first one or two episodes of every season of the new run. It's always been more a question of whether that's enough to make me want to stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I will be interested to see if 
it is a case that the first one or two episodes have this massive spike in ratings, and then and then what happens after that? Oh, they'll fall away. They always fall away. They'll well, be the, it might yeah, be the most mind-blowingly awesome series ever, and everybody stays. It, it, it could be for Doctor Who what Wonder Woman was for the DC franchise. Hmm. Possibly the um, one shining light in another <laughs> <laughs> in another wasteland. Possibly, but I, 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 I think that we'll, we will see a massive spike in terms of the audience, in terms of hmm. a spike in terms of modern day television. But I think we'll see a lot of people sort of come for the wow factor and move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, my hope that it works. Because if it doesn't work, the person to be carrying the can most will be Jodie Whittaker and not Chibnall. Because she is a public face of the show. And unfortunately, like we see with Colin Baker and to a lesser extent McCoy, mm. um, she might get slated to blame when really it's going to come down to mainly writing. I think she's a good actor anyway. She's okay. It's going to come down to the writing, I think, and how and and how the whole. I don't think I've seen her in any. The whole so. thing's put together, mm. because really, if if it doesn't work, Chibis can just run off to America and work on Netflix, a gig on that. So my hope that it works, because if it doesn't, I think the ramifications will be, it won't be on the air in another two years' time, mm. which is yeah. probably what it needs. Yeah, I think it does. I think it, I mean, as we keep saying, it's a twelve-year-old property. It's not like it's going to run for twenty-six years. I mean, the BBC have tried young actors and have tried old actors and it's obviously has lost doesn't matter how you cut it it's lost overnight viewers yes you might catch up audiences there but it's still not getting the ratings what it was mm. 10 or 15 years ago a lot more distractions obviously I'm hoping it does work and if it does fail it'll come back on, on a streaming service as a co-production that's my prediction I really do hope it works <laughs> Dave, thank you very much for having us uh, back for our last appearance here. Richard, thank you very much for also appearing. Doing great, and we're really going to miss you guys. Really? That's we're going to make damn sure I see neither of you ever again. (laughs) 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 On that note, we should mention that uh, all four of us have been taking part in the Goodies Pirate Podcast. So if you're fans of the goodies, please look us up. By the time this comes out, we'll be heading towards Series 7, just finishing off Series 6. It has been an absolute pleasure to share this four-year, well, four-and-a-half-year journey with you guys and just chat about a show that we all love and that we've been chatting about for more than 20 years but it's been good to do it on your podcast so thank you for the chance to be a recurring character Richard and Dave you've been there from the, from the beginning even before the beginning we were doing pilot episodes and asking for feedback hey Dave, m- m- most of the original emails you had in your first 10 episodes were us under pseudonyms so actually <laughs> was yes yes how, how, is, how is Tristan from Brisbane going <laughs> hope you well Tristan yep and how is Captain Hawkins yes <laughs> that's right yes yes your Skype ID gives it away uh, yeah no it's been really great it's been good it's, it's always great to talk about Doctor Who with, with friends and people in the same room so we've had a blast so thank you boys for supporting us and and uh, I'm sure one day we shall come back maybe maybe <laughs> we do want to mention though that Richard and I do have a new project that we are working on yes soon to unveil thank you we're, uh, we're not leaving <laughs> we're not yes, stopping um, <laughs> Dave and I had a meeting and decided that really 42 to Doomsday was too good to pass up so <laughs> you're out <laughs> No, Look, the franchising no. rights, a thousand dollars a month, you're fine. Uh, no, uh, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll get over that by calling it forty-three to do this. Yeah, so, so before we head off, um, Dave and I will we'll give you an exclusive to head out on. Uh, so January the second, twenty eighteen, is the fortieth anniversary of Blake Seven, and so Rich and I will be diving into a Blake Seven podcast in twenty eighteen. We'll be going through each episode. We'll be talking about various different subjects, but. 
if you've enjoyed the 42 to Doomsday guys just have a good chat about Doctor Who and you like Lake 7 we encourage you to check it out there'll be more details in the new year yes and hopefully you two chaps will join us we'll see Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. Wish all the best of them because there is no real decent Blake 7 podcast out there, so... Yours will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> if it's as good as a goodies podcast, it'll be a cracker. All right. And I'll be listening. Till the end of the editing. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very emotional to be here for the last time, but you guys were fantastic. You are absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and you know what? So, so was I. I. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and on that note, once again, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. For potentially the final time as a Christmas party, I've been Mark. I've been Rob. I've been Richard. And I've been Dave. Keep punching! And a Merry Christmas to all of you at home. Oh, yes. listen to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. You owe me for that. <laughs> <laughs>